Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Thurner, and today I'm going to be talking with Professor Elizabeth DeLugri about her new book, Allegories of the Anthropocene, out in 2019 in Duke University Press. Allegories of the Anthropocene traces how indigenous and post-colonial peoples in the Caribbean and Pacific Islands grapple with the enormity of colonialism and anthropogenic climate change through art, poetry, and literature. In examining how island writers and artists address the experience of finding themselves at the forefront of the existential threat posed by climate change, Delugri demonstrates how the Anthropocene and Empire are mutually constitutive and establishes the vital importance of allegorical art and literature in understanding our global environmental crisis. And let me just say that this is a critical book in humanistic scholarship on the Anthropocene and uh, essential reading for anyone interested in that subject. Without further delay, I hope you enjoy my interview with Professor DeLugri. Welcome, Liz, to the New Books Network. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'd like to begin the interview with a little bit about your intellectual background and how you came to this project. My background is in postcolonial and uh, women's studies. And I've been writing for a number of years on comparative islands, thinking about the Caribbean islands and the way in which um, Caribbean island writers were imagining their relationship to landscape and also to seascape. So the first book that I uh, wrote called Roots and Roots was a comparative work looking at Caribbean and Pacific Island writers and their kind of imaginaries of the sea, especially. Um, And over the course of the years, this field that became called environmental humanities developed And now we're talking about oceanic humanities in terms of thinking about cultural and ecological histories of the ocean. Um, And so what happened is my first work was really thinking more in terms of geography. And then this next monograph started to turn towards ecological histories. And I think one of the things that was so striking to me was thinking about the work of, um, let's say, Apeli Hoofa, who was an important uh, Pacific Island um, anthropologist, and he had been speaking about thinking about the islands as rather than small spaces in a large sea, is to think about the whole region as Oceania. And to me, it was quite poignant that he passed away before the ocean became understood as actually one of the biggest threats to islands. And so that really inspired a lot of the um, background to this work. Can you explain a little bit about how this project uh, began and how it took on the shape that it did? Well, part of it came out of just our ecological crisis, right? So I was doing some work um, on the history of nuclear testing in the Pacific and looking at how various um, Pacific Island writers have imagined that history. And one of the crises that, um, for instance, Kathy Jetnell Kishner, the Marshallese poet, has written about is about the history of um, nuclear testing and then the fallout from that that displaced um, thousands of islanders, especially in the Marshall Islands, 
And now she's making that direct connection to the displacement of uh, millions of islanders in relationship to sea level rise. So I think a lot of it really came from the inspiration from the poets who were making a connection between kind of a uh, history of ecological apocalypse, which is what the Marshall Islanders experienced, um, especially after 1954 with the Bravo test, um, which, you know, irradiated the whole uh, atmosphere. And then, you know, another ecological crisis, which is happening right now with climate change. So, and the two are very closely connected because we know that the way that um, atmospheric uh, chemists were able to measure carbon in the atmosphere came from the fallout of nuclear tests in the 1960s. So there was so much concern about all the nuclear testing, especially in the Pacific, where the U.S. detonated 67 hydrogen weapon bombs. And these are weapons that are up to a thousand times the yield um, of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So what happened is you have a worldwide um, protest and pressure put on um, the Atomic Energy Commission to take a look into what the fallout is, you know, where the fallout is happening, uh, what is happening in terms of a global um, uh, crisis over the environment. And so that's when they start to measure the carbon levels in the atmosphere. And that gave us really our hard science for understanding now what's happening with CO2 in the atmosphere. So the two um, are very related. And in your analysis, you in particular use the works of island artists and authors to elucidate this relationship between militarism and uh, both the creation of global warming and our sense of it. Can you explain this a little? So one of the, um, so let me back up a bit to connect up some of the comments about um, atmospheric carbon, because one of the things that was striking to me was that the, um, the atmospheric chemist who coined the term um, Anthropocene, uh, his name is Paul Crutzen, he coined it with biologist Eugene Storer, um, and it was first published in 2001, and their sense of the Anthropocene was to make a demarcation to say that we're no longer in the Holocene, that we should be thinking about the fact that the impact of humans on the planet is now has the, is at the level of a meteor strike or something catastrophic like that. And it's also something that can be measured, um, you know, so the concept of the epic is that it's both something that can be measured in the strata in a contemporary sense, but also for centuries um, onwards. And so to me, it's not an accident that Eugene, uh, excuse me, Paul Crutzen coined that term because he was the one working on carbon in the atmosphere um, after the nuclear tests um, in the 1950s and 60s. So there's a direct connection between militarism um, and the Anthropocene. And I think that's one of the things I really wanted to draw out here. And the poet, as I mentioned, Kathy Chetno-Kishner, the Marshallese poet, has also been making those direct connections. And I think that's an important aspect of um, understanding the Anthropocene that maybe hasn't been discussed as much. And the, the other aspect of thinking about mitigating um, climate change and our carbon emissions is actually to think about the fact that the U.S. military is the um, single biggest institutional contributor to CO2 emissions on the planet. So while we have a lot of conversations about the role of the U.S., um, which is per, per capita the largest um, carbon emitter, um, followed by China and India, um, I think one of the things we're not talking about is actually what is the impact of the U.S. military on the planet. So I think we can talk about technocratic solutions, but I think some things we could look at right you know, immediately, and this is what the artists and uh, writers in this 
that I examine in this book are doing is to think about the history of militarism, right? Just to think about what is the contribution of large um, military destructions of the planet and how can we mitigate that? Um, in another context we are looking at um, on the cover art is uh, a piece by Tony Capillan, who is calling attention to the, um, the role of um, plastics in the atmosphere, uh, I mean, in the oceans, and um, thinking about how the um, crisis of migration is also tied into these ecological crises, but also crises of the state. So I think overall, my concern was to think about how small island writers and artists could give us a sense of the planet as a whole. And I think there's been a long conversation about how um, we are on an earth island, right? And the earth island as a, as a, as a concept allows us to think about the sense that we're connected, but that also that we are um, limited, you know, our, our resources are limited. Um, and this is the Anthropocene is also a moment where we're understanding that um, our resources are limited. And, and so this, um, you know, critique that we're seeing from Greta Thunberg and others is that there is no um, sense that there that we can have limitless growth, right? And so we need to rethink capitalism as a whole. So these small island writers, um, uh, especially from uh, the Marshall Islands um, and the art, artists and writers that I examined from Jamaica um, and Dominican Republic are really calling attention to the way in which we are over an abounded space. And so I think in some ways they have this prescient um, ability to give us a sense of what the, the what the, how smallness can be read as a whole, right? And so and that and that's the role of allegory is actually to think about the allegorical implications of understanding the island as a world. Yeah, and as we think about islands, it can be tempting to romanticize them and idealize them as as Edens in the ocean, as as tropical paradises, as Tahiti's, as they've been treated in Western literature for uh, centuries. Can you say a little bit about how you think about islands in your work? Right. Um, I think one of the things that the island writers and artists that I've um, examined in this book do um, is they call attention to the long history of colonization and, and essentially of apocalypse. And this is a, a critique that has been coming from indigenous studies um, and from post-colonial studies, which is to say that even though you might say the global north is more aware of the kind of apocalyptic dimensions of our, our contemporary climate crisis, um, island writers and artists have been dealing with the history of apocalypse, um, you know, since 1492, certainly from Caribbean. So I think there are ways in which these um, writers have long, um, you know, there's been a long critique of Robinson Crusoe and especially of uh, The Tempest. In fact, a lot of Caribbean writers have been rethinking um, the narrative of The Tempest as a, a narrative of colonization of the Caribbean um, and reclaiming the Caliban figure. You know, who says, my prophet's on it, I learned to curse. He said, you know, you've taught me your language, but I'm now going to use it, you know, against you. So I think there's been a long engagement with the romanticization of islands in the Caribbean and the Pacific um, as these kind of um, utopian spaces, yet that belies the whole history of the dystopian um, elements of colonization, of genocide, of nuclear testing. So I think the two um, utopian and dystopian uh, conversation have been brought together to help us think through the kind of larger global implications of this. 
before we get into, I guess, a little bit of the, the content of the chapters of this book, uh, I'd like to reflect also a little bit on, on this idea of allegory and, and why you're looking particularly at allegories of the Anthropocene. A number of writers have written that you know the Anthropocene demands of us new ways of being in the world, of relating to human and non-human beings and so forth, and that this you know requires us to go beyond just a, a new genre of sci-fi of cli-fi fiction, but instead new narrative forms. Um, and some authors like Amitav Ghosh have written about, you know, the, the utility of Epic in, in conceiving these, uh, this multi forms of subjectivity. Um, and in here you're looking at allegory as being one of the prime modes in which people try to make sense of the Anthropocene. Can you explain why allegory and what this has to offer now? Mm-hmm. So um, there are a number of dialogues I'd like to um, encourage. And I think one of the first one was in thinking of um, the way in which scientists, uh, particularly geologists, were telling the history of the earth. I thought that uh, it would be important to bring in the role of the humanities and the arts um, to be part of that history. And I think one of the things there's been a number of critiques coming forward about, you know, the term uh, the Anthropocene as the age of man, you know, quote unquote. And so there's been a number of feminist critiques saying, well, you know, we did have many, uh, quite a few decades of critiquing the concept of man as a universal subject. So we want to think through other kinds of subjectivities, other positionalities. Um, So part of it was to bring through some of the more humanist work that's been, um, you know, uh, been arguing for the kind of diversity of the human experience. Um, And then the other part was that the scientists were pointing out this interesting thing that we cannot experience climate um, in a personal sense. So that's to say that we have our everyday experience of weather, but climate as a whole is a system, right? And it's a much larger system. And so we can't really experience it ontologically. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting telescoping between your everyday experience of weather, you may be experiencing you know, a horrific hurricane, right? Like Dorian just ran through the Caribbean. Um, but on an individual experience, is not that's not applicable to the larger. It can't be read as the, as the whole. So, and that um, struck me as also the way that allegory works. Allegory, when we think about allegory of the island as a world, you know, the island is not the world and the world is not the island, but we do make this kind of leap between one con- concept and then in order to understand a broader concept. And so that multi-scalar moving between island and earth and weather and climate is the function of allegory, right? Allegory allows us to tell stories. We need narratives in order to understand these, um, these historical processes. And so the narrative itself is not necessarily representative of the part isn't necessarily the whole, but we can understand some of the whole by thinking about the and so what I wanted to call attention to is the disjuncture between the two, that we use this, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a perfect mode, um, but it does help us understand larger, larger modes. And, and I rely a lot on the work of Walter Benjamin, um, who argued two really important things about allegory. One is that we can't understand the part for the whole, um, although we're necessarily caught up in that kind of thinking. And he calls attention to the disjuncture between the part and the whole in allegory. And then the second point that he made was that um, the, the allegory increases in times of crisis, and this is a time of crisis. So I don't think it's an accident that we're seeing the rise of cli-fi, right, climate fiction, but also climate film. Um, so blockbuster climate films like 
Snowpiercer or Day After Tomorrow, right? These are these are films that are using allegories of thinking about what the future is going to look like in the wake of climate change. Oh, and one thing, one, sorry, one thing I'll add in here too, because you brought up Amitav Ghosh's work, um, uh, The Great Derangement, which is just a wonderful piece and meditation on climate change. And one of the things, things that Ghosh calls attention to, um, as you just uh, summarize, is that we need to think through different kinds of narratives. Um, but one thing he doesn't do, and a number of literary scholars have, have brought this point up, is that he is speaking about what he called literary fiction. Um, and I think what he's not really engaging in that book is actually to think about how science fiction, for instance, science fiction, which is a particular mode that um, came into being, especially after the Cold War, um, is a narrative mode that actually allows you, it's an allegorical mode, it allows you to stage other worlds, right? Whether it's, you know, Star Trek or um, any of the Ray Bradbury works, which is to think through some of our crises that are happening on the planet, but to stage them as an alternative universe, right? And I think one of the points um, that I'm making in the book is that we've had this allegorical mode. We may not have seen it as strongly in um, what Bosch calls literary fiction, but we've certainly uh, seen it in all kinds of science fiction. Yeah, and I suppose that this you know, diversity of genres is, uh, emerges in this book in these in some ways, disparate chapters that treat very different genres of, of creation. And and you write in the introduction that each of these chapters is written with different types of audiences in mind. Uh, could you explain that choice as a, as a writer and as a scholar of how you approach that? For me, what was so interesting in writing this book was that it really challenged my understanding of audience. Um, I think in my earlier writing, as a post-colonialist and a feminist, I was thinking through certain kinds of narratives of, of difference. Um, and I had been making assumptions about a certain kind of audience that the work on the Anthropocene and climate change really challenged. And so one of the things that had happened is there was a dance troupe that came to UCLA, um, which I discuss in the book. And, and one of the problems is that I thought that the way the event was framed was quite nostalgic for this kind of utopian idol of sustainability and living off the land that these Pacific Islanders represented for a North American audience. And as I thought about it, um, on the one hand, there's a particular critique I would make as a post-colonialist and someone who works in indigenous studies that there is a certain kind of glossing over of history here and an idealization. On the other hand, I started to think, that for this particular audience, maybe complicating the history. Um, so, for instance, you know, uh, Tuvalu is is one of the um, uh, major um, areas that's being threatened with sea level rise, and perhaps it's not important for the audience to know that it actually was the U.S. military which um, made an enormous port there during World War II that actually is creating a lot of the sea level rise in that area. So I thought, okay, we, as a scholar, I want to know about these histories of militarism, and this is really important. But for a general audience who was coming to this performance, which was very moving um, and um, quite beautifully done, that, that kind of history may not be as motivating as calling attention to an already well-known colonial trope, which is about this kind of colonial nostalgia. Um, and so that really got me thinking about different kinds of audiences and different ways in which and the necessity for us 
to have different narratives in order to address this. And I think this is also one of the things that we're seeing in, in discourses of climate change, that there's not going to be one solution. We need to think about multiple solutions and, and multiple types of audiences, right? So um, I think that diversity um, in terms of both production, but also cultural reception is really in, important. So I'd be thinking then a little bit about um, about the chapters. One of them that, that really grabbed my attention a lot was, was chapter one, in which you talk about Erna Broadbear's uh, work, The Rainmaker's Mistake. And part of what's interesting here, for sure, is that, you know, stratigraphy is how we know the Anthropocene, right? It's a geological age known by markers in the soil. And this is, in a sense, a, a deep historical practice. Um, and by looking at her work, you're saying that uh, doing this also requires engaging with the human histories that are also buried in this in the ground um, at the same time. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about her work and, and the way you're looking at it. Well, Erna Broadbur's work is challenging. And I think one of the things that I found quite important for that book was thinking about this rewriting of history and essentially the, the novel is about um, the emancipation of a group of um, slaves on a plantation um, and then their struggle to understand what the concept of free means. Um, and I think this has been, you know, a, a point that is brought up by Dipesh Chakrabarti is to say, is this something that we should consider that with the um, advent of nationalism and the, um, you know, the, the anti-colonial nationalism that has existed since the 1950s, is all of this concept of freedom and democracy and development, is this something that we should think of in relationship to climate change, right? And, and I think this, again, is one of those questions raised in terms of um, on unbridled uh, development, right, is, the, is that we have a, a major crisis in terms of um, nations who are thinking, you know, we would like to develop at the same level that, um, that the U.S. and the global north has had the opportunity to develop. So I think those are some of the implicit questions in her work. But what she does here that I think is quite interesting in, in, the, um, in the text is, that number one, it's a difficult work because it's allegorical. And allegory is one of those challenging genres that that is pedagogical, which is to say that it's teaching you. So you're learning along with the characters. So in the beginning, the characters don't understand what this what this concept of freedom means. They don't understand their ancestry. They don't understand where they came from. And so as they explore that concept of, in the course of the novel, you as a reader are taken along. And one of the things they have to do is they have to unearth their submerged mothers. And essentially what they do is they find out is the history that they've been told, which is that the, the you know, the white um, patriarch who runs the plantation, he had f- figured himself as the father, right? The father of their history. And what they find out is that they have to dig underneath the earth and then they find their submerged mothers, right? And so one of the things that I found was quite um, useful about that is that as we're thinking about that concept is that we're thinking about history with a capital H, right? In, in terms of patriarchal history or a history of male achievement. And the, the novel really encourages us to think both about the submerged mothers in terms of the people who are not allowed access to history or who are not unearthed to be able to tell their own history, but it's also about the concept of Mother Earth, right? And so there's 
and this uh, I think would allow a critique of some of the technocratic optimism of, you know, we can just fix this with technology is actually to think about the earth as something animate, um, as something, as a participant in the system. Right. Um, and so I think that that is, are some, includes some of the larger implications of her novel. But one of the ways one could think of your work is as a combination of elements from post-colonial studies and from the environmental humanities and animal studies about interspecies relationships and interspecies worlding. Uh, can you say a few words about that and how you're seeing it? Well, one of the things that I've been doing for a number of years is trying to think through the the eco-critical discourse or the environmental humanities discourse in relationship to post-colonial studies. And I think that for many years, and rightly so, you had representations of post-colonial histories as very anthropocentric in the sense that there was an um, impetus to recuperate the human subject in the wake of a colonial history that denied the humanity of an entire people. And so you have a lot of -of coming-of-age novels that are very much about kind of 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 coming-of-age of the post-colonial subject, um, you can think of, you know, Jamaica Kincaid um, or any of these writers that are thinking through it as the subject of the of the buildings Roman or coming of age novel matures. That's also a sign of the kind of development, quote unquote, of the nation. And these narratives are very much focused on human. And what happens that I think has been very interesting in recent decades is with the kind of post-nationalist moment, especially in these um, in the Caribbean, is that now there's a turn to think through the human in relationship to the non-human um, and to think about the other kinds of um, animate beings. And I think you can see this very directly in uh, the Maori writing that I examine, um, particularly the writer uh, Carrie Hume from Aotearoa, New Zealand, where her interesting shift is actually to think about what does it mean for the human to merge with the non-human in the Maori um, uh, cosmology, there are, you know, everyone is connected in terms of kinship, right? So if you have kinship with fish and and you also have kinship with with rocks and stones and, you know, mountains, um, then what does it mean for the human and the non-human to merge? And I think for, for me, the reason I turned to her work in that chapter is that she really presses this in terms of narrative. So if you are thinking about how you read a story, you generally are following a discrete individual as they move through his or her lives. And what happens with this, her work is that actually that individual merges with a non-human and becomes a collective, but it actually poses a challenge to narrative because then how do you tell a story if you're speaking as a collective? If you're in one story, uh, um, a woman uh, merges with a, um, an abalone and she becomes this community, this the power, as they're called in Maori, uh, this community of power. And so then the narrative becomes quite confusing because you're not really sure what's happening. And so I think one of the things that she raises is something that I think people in animal studies and environmental humanities have been thinking through, is that how do we tell these stories once we think about these radical mergers or relationships with non-human others? Yeah. And related to this, you know, there's a long tradition, right, in the environmental movement of thinking that um, indigenous people have to teach Westerners how to live in the world and be at peace with nature. Uh, And of course, this in many ways precludes other forms of intersubjectivity and even solidarity. How do you see your work as responding or providing an alternative to that idea? Well, that's one of the, that issue in terms of the representation of the, um, the nature loving native quote unquote 
is something I address in the chapter um, that examines um, Matthew Jetnell Kishner's work, um, and also the uh, production of a number of climate change films that came out. Interesting, they came out just after 9-11, and so I read them as a kind of millennial um, fears um, and this kind of production of the end of the world narratives. And so what happened is a number of Western um, uh, journalists went to, especially to Kiribati, Tokelau, and Tuvalu, um, and created a number of films about the kind of nature-loving native who was living off the land, and now sea level rise is coming in and destroying their crops and and, and displacing the people. Now, on the one hand, this is true. Um, these are narratives that are true, but the way that they told the stories were very much in line with what Renato Rosaldo calls uh, imperialist nostalgia. And his critique, which came out in the 1980s, was to think about how anthropologists would go to these supposedly remote islands that were supposedly untouched by modernity and then create these very romantic uh, stories that are uh, very much about a kind of romantic pastoral. And of course, you know, many indigenous um, uh, people would argue that this is, you know, the, there no one was spared modernity or colonialism, right? So, so this idea of the kind of erasing of that history is very problematic. Um, but as I had mentioned, those films also end up being quite um, uh, important for certain kinds of audiences that are used to that narrative trope, right? So I think one of the things that, that comes up is that you have a diversity of narratives. So I, I place those films that romanticize Pacific Islanders and bracket out histories of modernity and bracket out the very active way in which, um, for instance, the Pacific Climate Warriors and many other um, activists in the Pacific have been at the UN climate summits and have been really pushing um, the mitigation of our carbon emissions. So to see, you know, to kind of place these into a political conversation and to, to see the role of activism in these communities. Um, but it's also to think through the way uh, that I turn to the Marshallese poet, Kathy Jitnell Kishner, who tells a story about climate change that doesn't bracket out the history of modernity or colonialism, right? And so I think what's so powerful about her work um, and you can access a lot of her poems on her website, um, is the performance of the poems insists on, a, on um, thinking through histories of modernity and colonialism along with a relationship to non-human nature, right? And that we have to have the ability to hold all these narratives. I mean, we've gotten to most of the questions I had about your book. Are there elements that we haven't covered that you want to make sure are here in the interview? Well, I guess one thing I wanted to um, highlight, I guess, for Kathy Jetlow Kishner's work, her work frames the book. So in the beginning, I open with a poem of hers thinking about climate change, and I conclude with it. And I think the, the um, to me, what's what very compelling about her work is that she um, understands her poetry in terms of a gift, and it's a gift to a certain audience. And I think what I find very powerful about that is that it also brings up this um, sense of interconnectedness. Um, a sense of exchange um, that we are, she's exchanging her words um, and, and that the also brings up um, a sense of obligation and responsibility on the part of the viewer or the participant in the poet. So I think one of the, the, the things that I conclude with in the book is to think through that this is not just an act of consumption of poetry or of art, but actually that there's a certain obligation um, involved in our participation in this. And that's why I, um, kind of inspired by Tony Capillan's work, who's on the cover, I decided to um, donate the proceeds of the, the book to uh, RICES, which is the Refugee and Immigration Center for Education and Legal Services, which is uh, managing or helping to try to manage or mitigate a crisis at the uh, U.S. border. 
Um, so I think it's that question about obligation and questions of care um, are where I include the book. And I think this is absolutely both care for each other, but also care for the earth. And I think this is, this is to me, one of the ways of thinking through possibilities. So what are you working on next? I'm at the Rachel Carson Center right now working on a book about uh, how the Cold War um, created new imaginaries of the deep seas, outer space, and the poles. Um, and this comes from um, legislation that um, turned the global, uh, turned basically global commons um, in order to prevent it from being militarized. And so you have the Antarctic Treaty, you have the you know, Atmospheric Treaty, and then you have the Law of the Sea, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, all happening at the same time period in the 1960s. And this was because of the, of the nuclearization of the atmosphere. The U.S. was sending nuclear uh, missiles out into space, um, and, was, and the British were planning to do some nuclear detonations in Antarctica. Um, and so I was I was curious about this legislative shift, but then also what that would mean in terms of imaginaries, because then you have this rise of science fiction. You have this rise of this kind of undersea imaginary. You have the rise of Jacques Cousteau, you know, giving us a new imagery of the kind of underwater world. And you also have the creation of Sea Lab and all kinds of underwater laboratories. So my work is looking through both the history of these Cold War military histories, but also thinking through how artists and uh, and writers are um, have kind of reimagined these these spaces. Wow, I uh, very much look forward to that work. Thank you. Well, Liz, thank you so much for taking time to to speak with me, and um, yeah, I look forward to talking again uh, during when your next book comes out. Thank you, Lance. Thanks so much for having me.